0: Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Blythe Robertson, author of the new book, America the Beautiful, One Woman in a Borrowed Prius on the Road Most Travelled. Uh, Blythe, welcome to Bookstack.
1: Hi, thank you for having me up.
0: And congratulations on the book. Uh, there's a question mark in the title. Uh, so was America beautiful?
1: America was uh, physically very beautiful. Um, And yeah, I think definitely the question mark comes from trying not to get canceled for loving America too much. Obviously, there are so many problems with our country. But um, yeah, I definitely think it was physically beautiful and spiritually beautiful in a lot of ways.
0: And, you know, you, you described the way you decided to kind of do this journey that, as you say at the beginning, there, there were only so many songs and poems about being free that you could read and listen to uh, before eventually you just snapped.
1: Yeah, I definitely I was working a um, full time job, which I loved. I was a celebrity researcher at a late night show. So basically my job was going in and Googling a different celebrity every day, which I basically did for free before anyone paid me to do it. But it was, you know, a job that had constraints on my time. I had to be in New York. I went and sat in an overly air-conditioned office building every day. And whenever someone was sick or something, my boss would say, you know, we're not curing cancer. Go stay home. This isn't going to be the first line of your obituary. And so, as I think a lot of people do, started to think more and more about. Like, oh, what could I be doing that that might be the first line of my obituary? What would truly living my life for me be like? And eventually I quit my job to go find out.
0: And this became uh, what uh, we sometimes refer to as the great American uh, road trip. You decided that you needed a theme or at least an organizing principle. Um, Why did you pick the national park system uh, as that organizing principle?
1: I'm an outdoor person. I really like to hike um it's like the only form of exercise that I will be conned into doing other than I guess playing tennis um so I knew I wanted to hike I missed green spaces in New York City it's really hard to escape if you don't have a car and you know people take the metro north and hike but it's like all the same millennials all hiking the same trails that are just off the train um so I thought okay if One of the things that I'm really missing out on at my job is seeing these beautiful places. And I wanted to see mountains. I wanted to see badlands, you know, waterfalls, tide pools. And I knew that the national parks would show me those things and involve, you know, less research than trying to find lesser known places. Um, And then I also from a young age have been kind of obsessed with getting these things called junior ranger badges which are little plastic or wooden pins that you get for completing like a kid's educational workbook. so like crosswords with names of plants that grow in the park or like just like bingo of things that you saw on a hike and they're meant for kids but uh, adults are allowed to get them so i thought okay i'll go to parks where i don't have these pins yet and that will allow me to feel like i am uh, really experiencing life because I've collected all of a certain set of things.
0: Yeah, and I love that at the at the end of the book, uh, when you've done around 30 of these parks, uh, you hand in your Junior Ranger book and uh, the person just looks up and says, yeah, you missed two pages.
1: Yeah, no one else was very like impressed by my quest to get these things. They were just like, why is an adult woman getting these books? But uh, yeah, it was meaningful to me.
0: Yeah, and you talk, you talked about uh, tennis there. You say that tennis, hiking, and watching TV dramas about women who drink too much are your three favorite uh, hobbies. So I guess that with this trip, it was you know it was either that or uh, your aspiration to be a professional tennis player or becoming the next Bridget Jones.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yes, exactly. And you know the tennis thing, I'm so bad at tennis. So really, this was the only thing that was open to me.
0: I think one of the things that is genuinely interesting, kind of about this as well, is that you know you you have a kind of a philosophical reason for doing it. Uh, I suppose what you might describe as that uh, sense of freedom uh, for the first time in your life, in many ways, for doing it. But it, it is it is also something that allows you to fulfil another of your ambitions, which is to be a full time writer for the first time too. So in fact, these two things really are intertwined for you.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean. That was definitely a trip when I, you know, I would meet people on trails, people in national parks. I mean, I think this is true of people in America generally, but people in national parks especially are just like ready to talk to strangers and ready to like ask people about themselves and very polite to people they don't know. And so almost immediately after quitting my job and starting this trip, people would ask me constantly like, oh, what do you do? And it was so strange to say i'm a writer and um i think like part of that is that it seems like this incredibly like privileged lucky thing that no one should be able to do and of course you know the economic forces keeping people from doing this full time are you know insidious and horrible but yeah i think like going on this trip seemed like this kind of freedom that it was almost like at times i was just like am i just on vacation for a long time? Am I just like, like, did I quit my job to just be completely decadent? And you know, I think that that marrying it to being a writer helps me feel like I was doing something meaningful when I think like, you know, I am certainly a person who has a work ethic to a fault. And like, it's hard for me to allow myself just having fun. And I think I was like, oh, this is vacation homework. I'm going to go on vacation and I'm going to think really deeply about it.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting. There, there are times in the book where you kind of worry that this is basically just some kind of uh, large self-indulgence, the, the whole thing. But you also talk about what you just described there as uh, what you call your, the kind of the Puritan in you, uh, the idea that you can't enjoy yourself on the road trip without giving yourself homework and writing about it. Uh, I, guess, I guess ultimately the book itself is you handing in your homework.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. And I think like when I was doing the trip and when I, you know, saw this instinct in myself to have to, you know, doing the book as my homework, even doing junior ranger stuff as homework. I went to a college that was very heavily photographed. A lot of tourists would come through and photograph it. And someone said to me at the time and it stuck with me that tourists kind of think of photographing as their homework. at sometimes like it makes you feel like, oh, I'm like doing my job of documenting this trip and i saw you know my photographing my writing the book my junior ranger stuff as my vacation homework and i saw that instinct in other people like i ran into a guy on a trail in bryce who was a professor during the year but was taking the summer to travel to all these parks and filming a documentary about it that he had hoped to sell um which i don't think he did he self released it eventually on youtube but i think like oh we all kind of have this Instinct that we can't just have fun, we have to make it homework. And I was like, Oh my God, this is just lame. Like, I do this because I'm lame and I'm addicted to work. But then I thought, you know, as I thought more about it, writing the book, I realized, like, no, like these are things that I want to do. And for me, being outside, connecting to nature, learning about the natural world are, you know, fundamental elements of what is good about life. And my instinct to do homework while doing that kind of thing is not because I'm lame it's kind of like a trauma response to living in capitalism like I've been conditioned that I must be productive at all times and of course that would hold true in nature and then I also want to do this as much as I can and like there's no way to do it if I'm not finding a way to monetize it which is kind of like depressing because I hate to have to monetize something so for lack of a less corny word spiritual but. You know, if it allows me to be outside, I'll do it.
0: And do you you think that sensibility is something that is particularly American? I mean, this is, uh, after all, the great American road trip. Do you think that Americans are, uh, you can characterize them as just being less decadent than Europeans like me? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I would say I have spent a lot of time traveling domestically and not very much time in Europe, um, not for lack of trying, but so I don't want to make sweeping generalizations about groups of people as a whole. I was just talking about this actually yesterday with my aunt and uncle about how money changes people and we're like, God, we know so many greedy people that have just turned on like friends. And I was like, well, you know, it kind of makes sense because we in America live in a society that does not have our back. To my understanding, I'm like in Europe, like countries have people's back in a bigger way. And I think like if you fail in America, there is not really a system there to catch you in the same way that there is other places. And I think like that engenders a like addiction to work in people because, you know, you're we're taught from a very young age here in America that you aren't owned shelter. You aren't owed healthcare. You aren't owed pleasure. You have to work for those things, which I think is not how it should be. But it, it makes sense that we're very addicted to productivity here.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. There are, there are so many canonical books about this uh, great American road trip. But uh, but as you point out, there, there are very few of them which have been uh, written by women. Um, at one stage, you describe uh, your book as being essentially Uh, what would have happened if, uh, and I'm quoting here, if Bill Bryson got his period. Why do you think there have been so few books uh, written by women on this?
1: I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I mean, one reason is that to do something like this, you have to have the freedom to do it. And I think that in the course of history, you know, women have been less free than men have been to leave the domestic sphere, especially alone. I mean, up until recently, you know, hotels would not let rooms to women traveling alone because they were, you know, afraid they were sex workers. And so there's just that. And I mean, just the logistical thing of like, you know, women were not allowed to sign for their own credit card without, you know, a father or a husband's approval until the 1970s. So there's all that, just the logistics of it. I think women, you know, marry younger. A lot of the responsibilities of the home fall on women. And, you know, that's fine to sign. And then something that I did not think about as a uh, something keeping women from doing a trip like this until I started to plan this trip is that truly to a person without an exception, every single person I told about this trip that I was going to do told me that I would be murdered um, or told me a, a way to prevent getting murdered. They'd be like, oh, I should buy a stun gun or something. And I think. I did not feel that I would get murdered. Um, I did not, in fact, get murdered. Uh, I didn't even get close to getting murdered. And it, it struck me. And, I, you know, I think there are things about me that I am maybe more prone to death than your average woman. Like, I think I'm a little bit, I don't have a huge regard for my own physical safety. But I, the response was so widespread that I realized it was structural and not about me. And um, I realized that like people told me the same thing when I moved to a a city to to go to college. And then after college, they said that I would get murdered in the city. They told me all these ways to not get murdered. And I realized that it was less that I was going to get murdered. And in the course of researching this book, I learned that women are actually more likely to be murdered in their home or in the home of someone they know. And men are more likely to be uh, murdered or violently victimized in public. So one of the about my actual safety it was about keeping women scared um and audrey and rich writes about this she calls it the role of male violence in keeping all women subordinate where like yes women and everyone can be unsafe in public but just the specter of that unsafety keeps you from being as vibrant in public spaces as you would be if you didn't have to have one part of your brain always worried about your safety and i think it keeps women from going on the road and the fact that fewer women are going on the road and writing about how they went on the road and had a good time and weren't murdered exacerbates the problem. So I was happy to provide an example of a woman who went on vacation and it was totally fine.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because that that seems to me to be one of the themes that emerges from the book. This kind of challenging of various uh, cliches of of all kinds. Including, uh, I remember at one stage, you make a new friend, um, a woman called Austin, who completely transforms the way that you understand Texas. And, and and I wonder if that speaks to a broader point that, you know, America really is so vast that we only know these places through the cliches about them. Uh, and in in that sense, travel really does seem to broaden the mind on all kinds of levels.
1: Yeah, I think that is very true. And like, I think that's part of what makes America so great. And of the reason it's so frustrating is there's just so much heterogeneity of thought and, you know, people that you really, really, really disagree with, like cruel lunatics out there. And then there are people who will completely flip your understanding. And I think like I struggled as this trip went on, worrying that I it, it was doing something bad. For, you know, for the world by going on this trip, just because there are so many people who go to the national parks, they're really overrun. And I did this trip before COVID and it got worse during COVID because, you know, outside was the only place that you could legally be with friends. And I wondered if I was doing something bad by writing about how beautiful they were, encouraging more tourism in any way. I also worried about all the fossil fuels I was burning. To get to these beautiful places, you know, like I was only able to get there by hurting the environment, um, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, should no one ever travel again? But I do think that travel is broadening, and it it does help you understand people more. And I think that that is worthwhile and worth it. So I do think that you know some ways of traveling are better than others.
0: Yeah, that that environmental question is an interesting one. You talk about how the National Park Service was founded in 1916 under the A brilliantly named organic act. But but there was a a, a central contradiction involved right from the very beginning there between the opening of these parks for the enjoyment of tourists and travellers, but also preserving them. And those two things have sometimes been in contradiction with each other.
1: Right, exactly. And I mean, even the act of, you know, making a trail is altering the environment. And, you know, that's just about the least harmful thing that you can do, you know, to so make any of these parks you have roads you have you know you, buildings that you're building just it's very destructive and um i think like throughout the first 100 years of park management almost always management has defaulted to providing for the enjoyment of places basically like encouraging tourism and it's hard. It's like, you know, I am coming more and more around to the idea that humans exist and will exist. And it's a good thing that humans exist. And like, people have always interacted with landscapes. And it's okay that people want to go visit these places. But, you know, it's it's very difficult to decide how much to open up a place to make it easy to access and enjoy and how much to preserve and i think like i read in my book that this is just inherently because you know the president who is responsible for a lot of the, the roads and trails being built was fdr and it's not a coincidence that he's the only president who used a wheelchair and i think like and some you're like oh like this if we pave this that's going too far like that's taking someone who might not have the same ability to navigate rough green from enjoying these places. So I love that I'm not the person who's deciding all these things, but it's definitely a lot to think about.
0: Yeah, and it, it, it seems a good example of uh, something that we discussed with uh, Adam Kirsch in an earlier episode where he was talking about how so often the things that we do, for example, to protect the environment are often worse than the original uh, thing itself. And, and this, this seems like uh, in many ways an example of that
1: yeah yeah god it's so true yeah have you read um elizabeth colbert's uh or colbert's book under a white sky it's so good it's about six examples of like horrible things humans have done to the climate and then their like attempts to fix it so the under a white sky thing is shooting um particles into the sky to reflect the sun to like try to fix climate change i don't think that there's a horrible end to the story yet but early on in my book i write about Isle Royal, which is a national park that's um, in Lake Superior. So you get to it by going to the upper peninsula of Michigan and taking a ferry. And there are moose and wolves on this island that both the moose got there by swimming there, which is crazy. And the wolves got there because they crossed an ice bridge that formed or that it used to form. But the, those bridges are forming less and less because of the warming climate. And so now there's just a ton of moose. And like there were only two wolves. So like, manage a population of over 2000 moose so the park system had to be like okay are we gonna like ship wolves to this island to like deal with all the moose that are running luck on isle royal so isle royal is a federally designated wilderness area and that's supposed to be an area where humans do not intervene but the people that had to make this decision were like well basically humans have already intervened everywhere on the planet through climate change so They did end up deciding to ship wolves to the island, and they were warning us all about that when I went in 2019 because they had just shipped the wolves. But
0: it's a lot, man. Some of the the questions that you have in mind as you're you're traveling are actually about the land itself, that the parks uh, and their place in the the complicated history of the United States. It's another one of those uh, questions that is politically controversial, too, about the parks.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. So my first book was called How to Date Men When You Hate Men. So, And so you might have imagined, I think, a lot of angry DMs being like, how dare, you know, blah, blah, blah. I got my first angry DM about this book, or I guess second, because I had someone tweet at me like, a true patriot would never put a question mark in a title, Sputnik America the Beautiful. And I was like, God bless. But a woman recently DMed me, like, you know, I bought this book thinking it would be a funny story about a road trip, but it's really a drag. I made all your political comments. And I think, you know, that the land is a big one of these where I knew I wanted to go to national parks. And I knew that I would not ever publish a book about the national parks and did not ask about, like, how we got this land. And I had to do a lot of research. Like, I grew up in... Northern Illinois in a very white area where we literally skipped everything having to do with Native Americans because it would not be on the AP test, um, like the test we took at the end of the year. So I did self-educate through reading a lot of books and I was shocked at what I learned. Like I kind of just thought stupidly that there was all this uninhabited land out west and that's why we have all these parks out west. But that's not true. I read this incredible book by Mark David Spence called Dispossessing the Wilderness. And he writes that uninhabited wilderness never existed in America. It had to be created. And basically, like, at the time that the Industrial Revolution created this middle class in America with leisure time and, like, money that they could spend, the U.S. government, as part of kind of their campaign on um, removing indigenous people from the land, started just declaring huge areas as national parks and even Yellowstone, our first national park. I had certainly heard the story that it was like, oh, all these guys are scared, like Native American people. They didn't really use this area, which was not true. Like people, they hunted in the area all the time and um, had to be removed before that park was declared a national park. So it definitely like is something that You know, I'm glad the parks exist now as a person in 2023, but I think that if you actually care about the land, you should care about the history of the land, too.
0: And sometimes these parks have been political footballs in a more obvious sense, too, that uh, you cite the example of Barack Obama extending them in the last weeks of his administration, uh, Donald Trump then reversing that in the first few weeks of his administration. And there's, there's a nagging doubt that kind of each of them did it basically just to annoy the other.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's so fascinating. Yeah, so let me get not know really before I wrote this book is that creating a national park takes an act of Congress. So that is not permanent, but it is difficult to do, difficult to undo. But creating a national monument, which is pretty much the National Park Service controls, like, I'm pulling this number out of my butt, like over 400 this. and there's only 63 national parks so the rest of those sites are like national monuments national historic areas you know national whatevers yeah so like bear's ears national monument or grand staircase escalante which were the two that obama expanded. he just had to sign an executive order so it was very easily done but then just as easily undone when trump came into office or in to who's this uh now deceased um Utah senator who really wanted cows to be able to graze, Orrin Hatch basically created this plan to undo them. And all it took was Trump just, again, signing an executive order. So it had never been done before. It was unprecedented that land would have protections removed, but it does make you realize how precarious things are in America when it comes to protection.
0: And finally, Blythe, uh, at the end of the book, you quote Whitman, uh, I tramp a perpetual journey. I mean, that, that's not just about the walking and the driving. I wonder, what do you feel after this uh, trip that you learned about yourself? And wh- what did you learn about America and Americans?
1: Yeah, God, what a great question. A lot of people asked me if I was going on this trip to find myself. And I was like, no, I th- I'm 28 years old. Like, I kind of already understand who I am. And I do think I didn't really discover that much about myself on this trip, other than how much I love my friends and miss them. I was very surprised how much I miss just being in a place that I cared about and put down roots and like had my community. And I think that kind of actually ties into what I learned about America, which was, you know, all these narratives that sent me on the road, like on the road itself, um, into the wild. You know, Bill Bryson's books, to an extent, are mostly about an individual traveler going off to seek freedom and adventure in America. And that, I think, is not the most compelling story. I think it's easy or it's possible to have freedom in America. A lot of it involves, you know, the pain of others. It's like not the most heroic journey, I think, to scramble your way to some sort of freedom to do whatever you want. I think like the community that I built in New York, I think the community that I write about my friend Eileen, who bought up some land in a ghost town and built this incredible community of artists in this little patch of land in Utah that had been a toxic dump site, had been a mining town, is, you know, zoned heavy industry, even though it's just a ghost town. I think turning something like that into something beautiful is what is good about America. And the fact that people walk around in shirts that say public land owner. Um, we're all kind of encouraged to think of this land as like all of ours. And I think that's for us to be like, I own Yellowstone. But it's kind of nice to be like, hey, we all care about this land. We all care about this country. All the problems that we have, you know, when it comes to climate change, when it comes to how do we manage this land uh, sustainably, that's not anything that any one person can solve. It really comes down to like, hey, let's all work together. And I think Even though, again, like there are people that I so strongly disagree with in America, I think that we are able to come together and care about each other and care about this land. And that is something that I saw driving around. And that's something that inspired me.
0: So the book is America the Beautiful, One Woman in a Borrowed Prius on the Road Most Travelled. It's written by my guest, Blythe Robertson and published by Harper. But for now, Blythe, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.